We are uh, in the middle of a series right now uh, in Romans. So if you've not been around Grace for um, a long time, this is, this is kind of what we do. We go uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. The reason why we do that is because we know that the Bible is the best way for you to get to know who God is. And, uh, and so we're going to walk through that. And sometimes we take breaks on doing that, but right now we're in the middle of Romans. We're walking into chapter 11 today, and Paul has some great things to talk to us about. Uh, some things that are particularly helpful to you right now. If you have people in your life that are far from God that you love and you want to help them take their next step toward Christ, let's take a look and look at what we talked about last week. So we were addressing the, the issue of how do we help people take their next step toward Christ? You're like, what's our responsibility and what's not our responsibility? We use three questions. Paul posed these questions. Number one, how can they, these, the they that he's talking about here are people who are far from God. And listen, if you're in the room right now and that's who you are and you're trying to figure out your relationship with God, you don't know what you think about Jesus. You don't know about the claims of Christianity. This first one is all kind of about you. Why? Because, you know, how can they call on the one that they've never believed in? So the first thing that he asks is a very basic question. And it requires from us as Christians a lot of patience. Patience to be able to walk with someone. We're not used car salesmen. We're not people who are trying to get somebody into a car, into salvation right now. Our job is to care and to love for the person over the span of a person's life. That's how we earn a voice in a person's life. So how can they call on the one that they haven't believed in? We just need to remember, especially if you walked in the church and lived in the church for a long time, it's really hard to walk into a church for the very first time. I still remember how odd it was for me to walk into a church for the very first time. So he says, how can they call on the one that they've never believed in? It's like, you calling on the Easter bunny. I mean, you're not going to do that. Why? Because it feels weird. I mean, if I don't know what I believe about God or even that he actually exists, when I get in trouble, I'm not going to go, God, please help me. Because that's kind of silly and ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. So as Christians, we need to take the moment and realize in order for them to be able to believe long-term, we have to walk with them and talk through the process. Number two, how can they believe in the one that they've never heard of? I mean, that's directly something that Paul's saying, hey, that's on the church. And I described two different types of churches in the world today come and see churches and go and tell churches. And they're very different. A go and tell church tends to be a little bit smaller. They're all about mission. It's about you going out and talking to people about Jesus in the community. And then there are come and see churches. And those churches are a little bit more about, hey, we're going to, you know, as you come and you bring people to church, we're not going to embarrass you or do weird things. And what I said was, here's what we're going to do at Grace. We're going to be a go and tell church and a come and see church. Because go and tell people are in the room right now. You are a great communicator. You have the ability to talk to people who are far from God. They don't feel judged or condemned. They don't feel overwhelmed after having a conversation with you. In fact, what they feel is encouraged. And so if you are a person like that, man, it's really important for you because we need you to be a voice in the community because some people are never going to step foot in a church without having a connection to the church first. And so when you invite them, you invite them not just, hey, do you want to come to my church someday? Or I think you should come check this out. You invite them on a specific weekend and say, I'll join you there and I'll sit next to you. It's what's going to make them feel secure. And then there are come and see churches where, which tend to be larger and they are churches that focus on excellence, you know, making sure that the communicator can communicate, the people can sing, and that we create an environment where God can work. And so, so grace is a go and tell church and a come and see church. You can't have one or the other. Both are absolutely necessary in order for us to see people come to know Jesus. And how can they believe unless they've ever, they've never heard? And listen, I know you might be thinking to yourself, well, everybody's heard of Jesus, of course. I mean, a lot of people have heard of Jesus today. I would not say everybody, by the way, but a lot of people have heard of Jesus. But when I was growing up, I heard about Jesus like I heard about Abraham Lincoln. 
He was nothing different than a historical figure who did some nebulous stuff that I wasn't really sure about. So our job is to make real Jesus into the life of other people. And the reason for that is because if we don't tell them who Jesus is, they will make up a Jesus version for themselves. Then number three, we said, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And I think sometimes when you hear this word preaching, you think of people like me because I am a preacher. It's what I do. But on the other side of it, the word preaching in the Bible or preach in the Bible simply means to proclaim. And our job with our life and our words is to proclaim the good news of Jesus in the world around us and to show the world that really, really, really following Jesus is a good and beautiful thing. And that's our job. This is what we do. At the end of that message last week, we ended in a scripture. It's in um, Romans um, 10, 11. I'm sorry. It's in Romans 10, 21. And it says this, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate and disobedient uh, people. So Paul right here is quoting the prophet Isaiah. So Paul lived 2000 years ago and the prophet Isaiah lived 2,750 years ago. Okay. So Isaiah was an ancient guy to Paul. And so he pulls Paul, he pulls Isaiah, Paul pulls Isaiah forward in history, and he says, just this, like what Isaiah was going through, he was going through, and sometimes we go through today. And that is sometimes we can say all the right things to a person. Sometimes we can be a good witness to them. We're walking in the spirit. Sometimes we can, we can do all the right things in order for someone to take their next step toward Christ, and they choose not to. That there's an obstinacy in their heart. And we don't know what that comes from. It can come from a previous background of brokenness. It can come from abuse. It can come from all kinds of reasons. There are numbers of reasons why people may not choose to take a step of faith, right? Could just simply be pride. I don't need that crutch, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, we ended last week by saying this, your job is to proclaim. Your job is not to transform. In fact, what I want to say to you is that none of us can transform the heart of another person. All we can do is create the environment for that heart to be changed, and God does the work of changing it. And so just to that end, I just want to encourage you, if you have not gotten tickets for our Easter this year, you need to go right now and get tickets for Easter, okay? I think this will be the last year we can do an Easter or Christmas at this building. I think we have kind of outgrown it really, really fast. And here's one of the challenges, right? We're we're looking for places. Don't worry about that. We'll figure all that stuff out. But watch this. I need you to go home and grab those tickets. Why? Because I want you to bring lost people to the Easter services. So what that means is don't bring Aunt Jane. Don't bring Aunt Jane. Aunt Jane goes to first whatever of, the, of whatever the city she's in, and she's at a church, and she's a Christian already. Don't bring her to church. Don't bring her to Easter. Like, let her stay at her church at Easter, okay? Let, don't steal from that church, okay? I want you to bring that person. You're like, dear God, there's no way they're going to come to Jesus, you know? And here's what we know. Every single time Christmas and Easter comes around and opportunities for people to take their next step toward Jesus or their first step toward Jesus happens every time. You go, that's kind of arrogant. There's no way that you can do that. You're right, I can't. But what we can do is create the right environment. I know that I can make it make sense for them. Whether or not they respond to that is on them. Your job is to be a proclaimer of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to live out that good news in front of other people. So I want to encourage you, partner with us and bring all kinds of people because here's what I know. I was one of those people that you guys reached out to at one point a long time ago, and my whole life was changed. And so think about the person that you think, no way, this guy, her, them, it's not going to work out for them. Bring them, and let's see what God can do. Amen? All right, so let's jump in. So today, we're dialing in to uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, and Paul is continuing in this conversation, right? He's continuing to talk about the fact that he wants to see the Israelites, because he's an Israelite, he's a Jew. He wants to see them come into a relationship with Jesus, but they've missed the boat. They've totally walked right past Jesus. 
And as a result of walking past Jesus, they've disconnected themselves from God. And so Paul is basically saying, if they have rejected him, what is God's posture toward them? I want you to think about this for a second. This is a big deal because it has to do with your family, your friends, and your neighbors, not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. So they're asking the question. Paul's asking the question. If they have walked away from Jesus, has God walked away from them? And the answer is no. Let's take a look at the passage. Verse 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? And he answers this question unequivocally, by no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Let's pause here for a second. I want you to see what he's saying basically is this. Just because you rejected Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus has rejected you. And this is a beautiful picture of God's love that is inequitable. It's amazing. He often comes further in our direction than we go in his direction. In fact, you know this because you have people in your life that have just basically rejected you, been angry with you, been abusive towards you, and you've turned right back around and said, fine, I'm going to cut you out of my life. I'm going to be angry at you for the rest of my life. I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. And sometimes, sometimes, actually, there are times when that is appropriate, for sure. But at the end of the deal, it's a human response to say, you hurt me, I'll hurt you. You're bad to me, I'll be bad to you. But it's just a form of wickedness. And God doesn't have that kind of wickedness inside of him. His response is, hey, you have rejected my son Jesus, but I've not turned away from you. And then he says, Paul starts giving his resume. He says, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. In Philippians 3.5, he gives his pedigree. And this is what, it, what he says, something very similar. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Like, why do I know that, that I'm right with God? How do I know that I am an Israelite? He says, well, I'm circumcised on the eighth day. That had nothing to do with him, but it did fulfill Mosaic law. The firstborn son of every family was brought to the temple on the eighth day in order to be circumcised by the priest and blessed by the priest. And so his parents even walked with the Lord. And so he says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. So not only am I of Israel, but I'm of this specific tribe. And the reason why he quotes this specific tribe is because two tribes in the Old Testament did not walk away from God. It was the tribe of Judah by which Jesus comes and the tribe of Benjamin by which Paul comes. So he goes, not only am I walking with Jesus, not only am I walking with God, but my ancestors walked with God as well. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is, this is in essence like, like I'm an uber Jew. That's what he's saying. Like, I, I am like uber Jewish right here, right? Like, I am super, super Hebrew. And then he says, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a teacher of the law. I don't just follow it, but he did say this. He said, when it came to the law, that his behavior was faultless. I mean, Paul did all kinds of things. And he gives this amazing pedigree to say, look, I'm Jewish. God has not turned his back on the Jewish people. He's still continuing with them. And he rescued me out of my blindness. And the same thing is true for your family, your friends, your neighbors, and coworkers, especially for those who are far from God. And you think there's no way that this person's ever going to enter into a relationship with Jesus. No way. Because I think God specializes in the no way type people. He specializes in transforming hearts that are far and rebellious from him. And so the beauty of that is it means that now every possibility is still on the table. And you go, well, no, what about this? And what about that? None of that matters. What matters is it's by grace. And I'll show you what that looks like in just a second. Romans eleven two says this, God did not reject his people. He just says it over and over again. He wants everyone to know. And it's important for us to realize what he's saying is, I'm not rejecting lost people. Like I'm gonna work in their life. And you might be thinking, well, they've not turned to him yet. 
And what I would say to you is continue to work in that direction. We work in that way, in such a way that it happens until they see Jesus face to face. And then that's between them and God. But our job as followers of Jesus, because we're compassionate and because we have kindness in our hearts and because we love people, is we share the good news of Jesus with them so that they can take their next step toward him and hopefully have an entire life that's transformed. He says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? So he pulls from an Old Testament passage. The prophet, the prophet uh, Elijah is complaining to God about the people of Israel. And this is what he says. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left who's faithful to you. And they're trying to kill me too. So let me tell you the circumstances behind it because it's fantastic. So here's what's happened. Israel is serving, the nation of Israel is serving under a king and his name is Ahab and he's wicked. Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel is one of the worst, she is the worst woman in the Bible, right? I mean, never name your daughter Jezebel. It's not a good thing to do, right? Like, like she is the worst woman in the, in the Bible and I'll show you in just a second part of why she is. So King Ahab's wicked for one very specific reason and that is that he pulled the hearts of Israel away from God and had them serve Baal. Baal was often represented as a golden calf. And so you've got these temples and, and, and you've got these golden calves and you've got people bowing down to them. And this is the worship of Baal. And there was one really, really attractive thing about Baal in the first century that's still attractive to this day. And it's this. Like the Bible tells us in the 21st century that wherever two or more Christians are, I will be present with you. So he's present right now, but I can't see him. Like, where are you, Lord? He's in my heart. Yes, he's in your heart. But where you can't see him. In the first century, you could go to the temple. You could touch. You could kiss. You could hold on to Baal. He was visible and present. And so Israel's heart was turned away from God because they wanted to see what God they worshiped. And so Ahab sent them in that direction. Now, Elijah was the prophet in this time. And Elijah's job basically is to speak the words of God. And so he comes to the people of Israel and they don't want anything to do with it. Whatever, Elijah, we're doing this now. We're not doing that anymore. And they've walked away from God. And so God raises Elijah up to do something incredible. He goes to one of the most amazing mountains in Israel. It's still there, Mount Carmel. And this is a spiritual center of, um, of worship. He goes to Mount Carmel and he throws down a challenge to the prophets of Baal. There's 450 of them. And he says, hey guys, we're gonna go to the top of the mountain. We're gonna build a giant altar. And this giant altar, uh, we're going to wait to see which God calls down fire from heaven. And whichever God does that, then we'll worship that God. Fair? 450 prophets of Baal, like, fair, dude. Fine. We're going to do it. They go up to the top of the mountain. Now, you can imagine, it's not just Elijah and these 450 people. I mean, imagine if, like said, I said at the end of the broadcast here and, I, and, and the time together, I said, hey, listen, here's what I'm going to do next week. I'm going to perform a miracle. A lot of people would come. And here's the reason why. Because they would want to go, I knew the moron couldn't do it. Like, I just, I, like, I knew it. I knew he was, that's, I just want to see him fail. And so all of these Israelites are gathered around, right? Because Elijah stands against the, the, the majority culture here. And he says, listen, I'm going to serve God, Yahweh, and you're going to serve Baal, and you do it first. So you're up, go. And the Bible says from morning till evening, they just danced around, they beat drums, they danced around, they did this giant thing. The Bible says they cut themselves, they were just bleeding all over the place, they were going all over the place, making sure that Baal would listen to them and call down fire from heaven. 
Eventually, they were just exhausted. And now you've also got Elijah, who's just not kind to them in the middle of all this. He's like mocking them. He's like, hey, is your God asleep? And they're just getting frustrated, so they're cutting themselves more because more sacrifice requires right, for, for Baal to respond. And then this is true. I mean, you can go look it up yourself. I'm not making it up. He actually says, hey, guys, uh, is, is Baal in the bathroom? Is he in the bathroom? Like, is he, is he peeing right now? Is that, is that like what's happening? Is that why he's not here right now? He's mocking them. They're all just getting more mad, and they're cutting themselves, and they're dancing until they're just exhausted. And he goes, my turn? And he prays this really simple prayer, this humble prayer before the Lord, and the Lord just you know, pours down fire from heaven and just demolishes this altar. And immediately, all the people who gathered around realized that they were on the wrong side of God, and they took and they slaughtered the 450 false prophets. And it is just, it's a scene. And it gets back to Ahab. And Ahab has been leading the nation in this way. Now he looks foolish. Now he's on the other side of God. And so he decides that he's going to come after Elijah. But not just him. His wife takes the lead on this, Jezebel. And she decides, she decides that it's going to be within a 24-hour period, she says. In 24 hours, I'll have your head or it'll be my life. And she basically just goes after him. Now Elijah has just called down fire from heaven. I mean, I would think this is a win. You know, I would think, I would be sitting there going, Oh, bring it. I mean, bring, just come on. Just, I might call fire down on your head next. I don't know. Like that's just, he's in a really good spot, but he doesn't feel it. He doesn't really know it. In fact, Elijah takes off and he's hiding in this cave and he's interacting with God. And this is the story from 1 Kings 19, his conversation with God. So he's hiding, he's asking God for help. Verse nine of 1 Kings 19 and the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? This is God's, this is God's question to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Like, why are you hiding in a cave? And, and Elijah's response is pretty amazing. He replied, this is bold. I'm going to say it's bold. I don't think I would speak to God like this, but he says, he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. In other words, God, I have done what's right before your sight. I'm passionate for you. I'm walking in the ways. No one else is. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death. And the I am the only one left. And by the way, they're trying to kill me too. So God, if you want representation on the earth, you have to protect me. You have to make sure that I'm okay because I'm the last person following you on the earth. All of Israel has done these things. They've rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left. And it's interesting. When Elijah's having this conversation with God, God's not angry with him. He's not mad at him, but man, it is clear Elijah is complaining. And I want to remind you that when we are interacting with God, we don't have a kind of distant formality with God. There there, there isn't this distant formality with God. You don't just bring your best self. Hey God, I'm here living my best life. No. No. When we come before the Father, we come before him with all of who we are. If you come with victory and wonderful things going on in your life, bring it. It's fantastic. Walk in that. But what I do know about most people, and this comes from the counseling background that I have, after I've counseled like amazing business leaders in Central Florida, professional athletes in Central Florida, here's what I know. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what kind of outward success you have. There's brokenness on the inside of you. Every single person I've ever met in my whole life, including me, has got just these broken parts of them. And the reality for us here is that as we bring ourselves to God, we bring all of that to God too. 
and Elijah comes to someone he has intimacy with. This isn't some distant figure that he's unfamiliar with. This isn't some historical person from the past that he has an awe for. He has respect for God, yes, but he also has enough respect for God to trust that he can bring the bad parts of himself too. And you need to not think it disrespectful to question God sometimes in your life. It's not. King David in the Old Testament was one of the most devoted followers of God. And God said, I love this guy so much. He's a man after my own heart. And David screwed up left and right. And all through the Psalms, you see David questioning God. I don't understand why this is happening. If you don't have that kind of relationship with God, start that kind of relationship today because he's omniscient. He knows all that you think. And listen, if you're not a Christian, this may be the very first place you start with God. Talking to Jesus and saying, I don't understand why. I don't understand how. I don't understand anything that has happened in my past. God, help me understand. Because bringing all of who you are is what God is asking for us to do. So God responds to him and he doesn't condemn him. He doesn't judge him. He's not mad with him. In verse 11, it says, the Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. So this is very similar to something that Moses did when God passed by. One of of the things that you need to know is that the scripture in the Old Testament teaches us that we can't see God. We can see Jesus. We can't see the Father. He is so different and so holy and so perfect that the Bible says to see God with our eyes is to die. We can't contain it. And so here, Elijah goes up into the mountain and he finds himself in a cave. And this is what God does. Then a great Lord said, go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. I want you to think about this. This is, this is the father coming through the valley. And as he's coming through the valley, just rocks and boulders and mountains are being obliterated as he comes through. The shattered the rocks before the Lord. But look, the Lord was not in the wind. He wasn't there. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord just shakes the earth. But the Lord was not in the earthquake either. Verse 12. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a gentle whisper. And in between verses 12 and 13, there is a sudden awareness in Elijah that God is present with him. That after all of these external incredible events, the wind coming through and ripping the mountains apart, he can feel the heat of the fire. He can feel the shaking of the earth. Have you ever been in an earthquake before? It is a freaky experience. I was in Africa in a high-rise building one time when I felt my first earthquake, and I thought we were all going to die. Elijah's going through these terrifying experiences right here. And then all of a sudden, between verses 12 and 13, Elijah realizes it's God, verse 13. When Elijah heard the whisper, he takes his cloak and he pulls it over his face. Why does he do that? Because you cannot stand in the presence of God. The Bible even says in the book of Revelation, right now around the throne of God, there are angels that circle him, but they take their wings and they protect their eyes from him because they cannot even look at God. And so he takes his cloak and he places it over his face. He walks out to the mouth of the cave and God is just passing by. He can't see it. He can feel it. He can experience it. But it wasn't in these extraordinary things. It was just a quiet, gentle whisper. And what did God say? The voice said to him, the same thing he said to him at the beginning. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
As if to say, Elijah, do you not know that my presence destroys mountains? That I have the power to shake the world? That I can light everything on fire in the universe? I have all the power of the universe. I created all of this. And you are hiding from Jezebel? You are my prophet. Where you go, I go. Where I go, you go. There is no need to be afraid. And I think sometimes we forget that that same God that was with Elijah, that same God who was with Elijah is with us. That no matter how alone you feel, I'm the only one left, God, there's no one else around. No matter how much the dominant culture around you pushes back against your faith, and guys, just, I mean, let's put this to bed right now. We do not live in a Christian country, nor do we live in a Christian city. We do not. So dominant culture means that you're going to live in a world around you where values are radically different from the ones that are expressed in the Bible. So sometimes it's going to feel like 450 against one. And our job is not to feel the one. Our job is to know the one because he's with us. And it doesn't matter. And sometimes we're not going to see him with this great miracle. Because I think sometimes what we approach God, we approach God with, I need some help from you. Can you send an angel? Can you perform a great miracle? And we put a fleece out there and we say, Let's just, I want to test you. Let's just do this thing for me and I'll know that you're with me. When the reality is, he's just like, be quiet. Be still. And right now, just know I'm with you. Because if you're not quiet and you're not ready, you're going to miss the whisper. Because he wasn't in the wind. And he wasn't in the fire. And he wasn't in the earthquake. It was the quiet whisper of the Lord who reminded Elijah who he was. What are you here? What are you doing here? You're a prophet of God. And then he reminds him in verse 18, hey, Elijah, you're not by yourself. Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. Now he thought he was the last one among all the Israelites. I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. They've not gone up to the golden calf and kissed the calf. 7,000 believers. And God is always in the business of creating a remnant of people around that follow Jesus. It's an amazing thing that Elijah thought he was all by himself. And when he called fire down from heaven, it spread all throughout Israel. And those 7,000 people, they watched as God's prophet did something that nobody had ever done in history before. And it encouraged them. Do you know why? Because people are watching you. They watched Elijah and they're watching you. Right now, what they need to see is Christians who walk according to the scriptures. People who walk in kindness and goodness and faithfulness. And you never know, just like Elijah didn't know that there were 7,000 people that were encouraged by his witness of simply being obedient to the Father. People are watching your life right now. Your kids are watching your life right now. And they're either going to be discouraged or they're going to be encouraged. And it's not about you being good. It's just about you walking with Jesus. Because you know what? Bad people walk with Jesus. And they're just forgiven. And our job as Christians is simply to show the good news of Jesus to the world. And one of the best ways that you can do that is when you fall down, ask forgiveness. 
not just from God, but from the people that you mess up with. And it's so easy just to go and go, I screwed that up. I was acting out of the flesh. I was being stupid right there. And so I'm telling you this right now, not because I necessarily want to, but I'm telling you this right now because I want to be right with the Lord and I want to be right with you. It's an amazing, that kind of humility transforms people's hearts towards you. And maybe some of you need to leave and go have that conversation with somebody, but you're not alone. There are other brothers and sisters around you right now who support you. But sometimes it feels like majority culture is in charge. But God's the one who's in charge. Verse four, Paul picks this argument back up again. He says, and what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. What a beautiful thing. God has created 7,000 believers in the middle of Israel. He's, He's not forsaken Israel any more than he's forsaken your family or the city. God is with us. And the city of Orlando will see different things happen in our lives. And you have no idea the impact that you're having on people right now. I don't think we'll know that till we get to heaven. I think it's easy for you to look at someone like me and go, oh yeah, you're having an impact because you have people coming and there's all this conversation. You are too. Your faithfulness, your witness, your kindness, your goodness to the world, people are seeing that. And when they see that in you, we don't point to ourselves. We point to Jesus and say, it's him. He's the one that's changed me. He's the one that can change you. And here's where the whole message, this is the most important part of this whole thing, verses five and six. So Paul is talking again about Israel and how he wants them to be saved. He says, so too at the present time, 2,000 years ago, a remnant is chosen by grace. A remnant out of Israel is chosen by grace. And by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were works, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. So this is the most important part of this. So he's saying, listen, 2,000 years ago, God is saving some Jewish people, just like he saved him, the the most Jewish person, a teacher of the law who should not have followed Jesus because no one else did, God chose him and he did. And listen, if our following Jesus is by grace, then it cannot be based on works or what we do. If it were based on what we do, then grace would no longer be grace. And so this is what this means for you. This means that like when you look at somebody in your life right now and you think to yourself, there's no way that person will come to Jesus because of this, because they were an abuser, because they were a drunkard, because they were angry, because they were mean, because they're materialist, because they're filled with rage, because they're whatever. God's literally saying none of those things are actually part of the equation of him coming into a relationship with you. And so if you're in the church right now and you're thinking, I feel like the church is about to burst into flames based on my sin. You need to know your sin is not part of the equation here. It's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And you know what that means, right? It means it has nothing to do with your behavior. It has to do with his choice of you. And what's beautiful about that is it means people like me who are walking in radical wickedness before he became a Christian was able to become a follower of Jesus because Jesus changed my heart and life. And if he did it for somebody as wretched as I was, he can do it for you. And he can do it for your family members. Listen, guys, my brother became a follower of Jesus five years after I did. Now, in our family, because it was crazy, abusive, you know, environment, it was every man, woman for herself. And so my mom did what she needed to do to survive. My brother did what he needed to do to survive, and I did too. And I didn't walk with my brother growing up. He's four years younger than me. And I would not treat him as a good older brother because I was just trying to make it through. And later in life, we connected again. And he saw the life change in me. And it inspired him so much that he became a follower of Jesus himself. Now, my two nieces, they love Jesus with all their heart. And a generation has been changed because of that. My mom, eight years after I became a Christian, 
became a follower of Jesus because of the change that was taking place in me. I was the wild child that nobody could control. And then my father, in the last six months of his life, became a follower of Jesus. For the last five years of his life, I wasn't his son, I was his pastor. And I talked to him about Jesus and the good news and the hope of the gospel. And the last part of his life, he became a follower of Jesus. People are watching your life. What you do absolutely matters. It's not just about you. It's about them as well. And it's not based on works. And it's so beautiful because if it were, none of us would be here, but it's based on grace. Romans 7 says this, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but others were hardened. And so this is really important too. So the elect among them did receive grace, but the others were hardened. Um, How were they hardened? Verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And so when he means to this very day, he means to their day, but also in our day too. So what does this mean? It's better read actually in the language like this. As it is written, God gave them over to a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. And eyes that couldn't see and ears that couldn't hear what? The gospel. That's what he's talking about. And so why did God harden some people's hearts? Well, here's, here's, here's the principle behind this. The idea basically is this, is that if you're a person that commits themselves to choosing not to see what God has for you in your life, if you look at the scriptures and you say, I don't like that part of the Bible, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, right? Then when you want to find truth, truth will be harder for you to find. And here's the reason why. Because when you harden yourself against God, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and you say, no, I know what I'm supposed to do, I choose not to do it. You harden yourself. And it makes your heart harder. It makes it more difficult to be able to penetrate, right? Now, God can do anything, but it's a dangerous thing to harden your heart and then just hope that one day you can turn back around. Israel had hardened their heart all through the Old Testament towards God. And then God simply said, okay, fine, be hardened. And he let them be hardened in that way. And for us, it's an important reminder that truth matters at every corner of our life. Verse 9 says it like this. He quotes David from the Old Testament. He says, may their table. What's a table? This is the, where they eat, where they spend time with each other. This is where intimacy is supposed to happen. And he's talking about people who have fallen away from God and chose to live away from him. He says, may their table become a snare to them, a trap to them, a stumbling block and vengeance, retribution for them. And he uses this phrase that's kind of like an old Jewish curse. And he says it like this, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. The imagery that he's he's evoking is the imagery of slavery. It's that Israel has walked past Jesus and in walking past Jesus, they've lost forgiveness and freedom. And so when you walk, by the way, apart from Jesus, you have only your own resources And so it piles on your back and it's like being bent over. You're carrying, right? And Jesus, when he talks to people in the first century, he says, listen, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. In other words, I'm not gonna put something on top of you that's gonna tear you apart. When you walk apart from Jesus, you are enslaved to other things because we were all created to worship something. And you will worship materialism, You'll worship your sexuality. You'll worship your fears. You'll worship something, every one of us. But when you come into a relationship with Jesus, he opens that up and says, no, no, you don't have to carry that anymore. In fact, give it to me and I will carry it for you. Give it to your church and they will bear your burdens as well. We don't have to walk in slavery. And the whole thing ends 
really encouraging like that. Like our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people that we love that are far from God, they won't walk in slavery forever either. Verse 11, again, I ask, how many times has he asked this? Like five times? Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. You know what that means? That means that the person that you're walking with right now and you're like, never come, they'll never become a follower of Jesus. They have not stumbled so far as to not be able to recover. So mom, when you look at your kids and you're like, they'll never come. I've talked to them over and over again. They have not stumbled so far as to not recover. They will recover one day. Encourage them, support them, show them the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. And ultimately, that good news will penetrate their heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you care about people who are far from you and you care for your church, God. Help us to have the heart that the apostle Paul had that we love and long for the people that we love to come to know you. Lord, let us be people of kindness. Let us be people of goodness. And Father, to start that, we start bringing all of ourselves to you, not just part of ourselves. We're not just gonna bring the beautiful Instagram version of ourselves. We're gonna bring the part of ourselves, God, that is ugly and detached and maybe even mad. And we're, we're going to trust, God, that you can bear all of that because you are God. You're the creator of the world. You have a big shoulder to be able to deal with all this. And so, Father, as we bring all that we are, both sinful and righteous, to you, we ask, God, that you would take and make us more like your son, Jesus, that we'd walk in his strength, walk in his peace and walk in his goodness. Not just when we get to heaven, but right now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.